This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Strangers and Aliens, Episode 288. Zone, the Prestige, the Rich Man, and Lazarus. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Strangers and Aliens. My name is Ben, Ben Avery, and I am your uh, solo host today. For this episode. And this episode is, well, it's that time of year again. And uh, the summer heat is finally gone. Uh, there's a little little nip in the air. For some, it's a little bit too much of a nip in the air. And for others, it's, it's just refreshing. It's just nice. It's the weather that, that I've been waiting for. Uh, we can turn the air conditioners off and the heater is waiting to be turned on. For some, for others, it's been turned on for a little while, but it's, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Green has faded to orange and brown and red, and the blue skies have faded to gray, and we're in that that time of year where there's just that perfect autumn weather. I love autumn weather. (laughs) I love, honestly, I love October. Uh, It's my birthday month. And so that's that's a part of it. I'm, and I'm kind of I'm curious. I do wonder if the kind of day that you were born on or the the season that you were born in, if that affects your preferences. I I don't know. Um, certainly seems to have affected mine. But I guess that's one of those um, you know, chicken egg things. Like, do I do I like the season because I was born in it, or um, do I like the season and I happen to have been born in it, or? Um, is it just because I know in this season, you know, it's going to be my birthday <laughs> or whatever. But this is my season. It's gray. It's wet. It's dark. It's cool. And a lot of times I'm told I'm I'm weird. Um, you know, my <laughs> if I'm going to take the seasons in order of preference, it goes fall, winter, spring, and then summer. And basically, I have to endure summer in order to get here into autumn, into October. And like I said, it's my birthday, you know, so to me, October means many things. Weather and birthday are just, just two of them. It also means it's the, the time of year when a young man's fancy turns to scary stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a young man, but still my, my fancy turns to that, that scary stuff. And, and again, I, I, I know this is another chicken and the egg kind of situation where we, we turn our attention to Halloween. And so that's why we are looking at this and saying, Ooh, it's scary because we've created this, uh, scary quote unquote, scary holiday. Or is it because the season just lends itself toward the, the scariness as things are, are getting darker. And as things are falling apart, we're, we're entering entropy. We've got leaves falling off the trees. We've got, uh, life and vitality fading, uh, yeah. So anyway, during this time period, um, I'm thinking about horror movies more. I'm, I'm reading horror comics over at Comic Book Time Machine. And um, yeah, scary stuff. That's 
more, or if not scary, um, things, stuff that references the the scary stuff. Uh, Now, the the Halloween question, that's not what this podcast episode is about. That's a conversation for another day. Um, It's an interesting conversation. Um, But, you know, because of Halloween, because of these different things in October, um, as I've said, my, my fancies have turned in that direction. And, you know, I... Back to the Halloween question, I guess all I'll say to that is this. I feel like we both assign too much and not enough credit to the pagan origins of the day. So how's that for coming down on no side? Um, I'm, I'm a mugwump on this. My I sit on the fence with my mug on one side and my rump on the other. Uh, again, conversation for another day. Anyway, in, in thinking about horror stories um, and fear... Uh, last year around Halloween, um, I wrote down a couple different ideas, and one of those ideas became an episode that we put out a few months ago. Uh, episode 266 tells the story of one really packed day in the life of the disciples, and uh, it tells that story in the in the the style of the lore podcast. But like I said, there was a couple other things that came out of that brainstorming. A couple other, I guess biblically scary stories um and so in addition to telling the story of jesus in that style i also was looking at the story that we're going to be looking at for this episode but i was looking at telling that in the style of of like a twilight zone episode um and i actually wrote it that way I, i wrote a script that that has the story it's it's meant to feel like a twilight zone episode it has a rod serling stand in it was written in that style and uh I just decided that the first of all, there's a little bit of work that goes into presenting an audio drama. But the second of all, um, while it is interesting because the style of of the story itself kind of feels Twilight Zone ish. I I just didn't feel like the the style that I'd written it in uh, did the story credit. Uh, And maybe I'll come back to it again sometime. And and I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Um, But this the story is it's a parable from Jesus. And it, when you take a look at it and break it down, it it does break down like a twilight zone story. And and once I started thinking of it as kind of this kind of short story, this short horror story, it it definitely, as you look at it, it takes the flavor of, of that thing. And, um, the, the pattern, the, the outline or, or the model of the story. I mean, it could be used in writing flash fiction. Uh, it just, he, he tells a very succinct and very powerful and very um, meaningful story, but there's also some a couple twists and, and turns in it, so to speak. The story itself comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through through 31. And and as I'm going through this, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll reference some of it and read some of it uh, as I'm as I'm talking through it and, and kind of telling the story and, and adding my commentary. But um, at this point in time, Jesus is doing what he does, and he's telling stories to tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and followers. And the way Luke records the stories, um, they're kind of thematically linked by money, which is kind of interesting. But um, the stories right before he started talking about this particular one, he, he tells the story of the lost coin, which is actually a money positive story, I guess, if you want to label it. Uh, you've got this story of 
someone who's lost this coin is very important to them. When they find it, they celebrate because they found something that was important to them. Um, then he tells the story of the lost son. Uh, he tells the story of, well, it's the, it's the prodigal son. And this prodigal son goes out, takes the money, spends it in a really bad way, and ends up coming back home because he realizes his father's servants have it better than he does now. And, you know, then you have the other brother who's like, hey, I never did any of that stuff. You don't celebrate me. And, you know, they go together because something was lost and now it's been found. And then you have the story of the shrewd manager, or you could call it the story of the bad manager or the dishonest manager. But it's again, it's, you know, doing, uh, taking money when the manager's, the supervisor has gone away and, and what do you do with it, you know, and, and how do you use it and, and how do you use it well? And so you have these stories coming out and he's, he's telling these stories about money, which I just found interesting because when we get to the rich man and Lazarus, I mean, it's not about money, but it's about a rich man and the label that's used to describe the man rich. I mean, can't be rich without money. I mean, technically speaking, although we used to ask my parents, you know, are we rich? And my dad, every single time we asked that question, would answer with, yes, we are rich with love. And I don't know why we asked that question so many times, because it was pretty clear. We were not rich, but we did. (laughs) So anyway, the Pharisees grumble. They're not happy. And he speaks to them. And, you know, the implication is that this story was actually kind of for them, told to them, kind of told about them. And yeah, so it's interesting because as we get into this story, um, the, just the way that he tells the story, as I said, you, you've got, it's a three act structure. And what I actually found interesting as I was thinking about this is um, I'm, I'm thinking about the, uh, the prestige, uh, the Christopher Nolan film. And in, in the prestige, you have this, these three, parts to every magic trick and the second time I watched the movie when I wasn't you know just kind of picking up my jaw from the, the different twists and turns that I didn't see coming um, I started seeing you know uh, yeah oh the pledge the the turn the prestige oh he's doing that in this movie and then I start thinking oh we can apply this to a lot of different things you can apply it to honestly you can apply it to almost any kind of verbal communication where you want to present something that's going to draw people in and so Jesus does it here um, so I'm, I'm going to quote from the movie as well just as we're kind of talking about this because we can kind of learn some storytelling lessons from from Jesus here So we have our first act right here, and uh, Cutter, the character from The Prestige, says, Every great magic trick consists of three parts, or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course, it probably isn't. And, and so I'm, I'm not going to do Michael Caine. Uh, I'm not going to do the voice. I I don't think I would do a very good one. So I'm just not even going to try. But that's what happens here. And it's what happens in almost every uh, Twilight Zone episode. You start out by having something ordinary, just regular life. And usually it would be some sort of regular life in in a Twilight Zone episode. It's it's a regular mundane uh, suburban 
life or something recognizable, something familiar, something ordinary. But just by virtue of being in the story, you know they are not ordinary. They are they're something more than that. And so we have our characters here. There's three main characters, uh, but we start out with the ordinary, with the pledge, with two characters, the rich man and the beggar. The beggar, we don't get much information about him. Uh, there's not much change about him. I, I would even go so far as to say he is not the important character here. The, I don't know if I would call him the antagonist because the rich man is the one who we are focusing on in this story. I, I think I'm going to go with Dan O'Bannon's uh, phrase, the anti-protagonist. Uh, he's the main character. He's the character who has an arc in this story. Uh, the beggar doesn't have much of an arc. The beggar starts out as a beggar, and then something happens to him, and there's no development there. The rich man, we get development. But we have these two characters, and they're juxtaposed against each other. You have the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is rich, and Lazarus is a beggar. Uh, in fact, it says, um, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. It's act one, and it just sets up, we've got these people and they live in close proximity with each other. Um, the, the beggar, Lazarus, is near the rich man. He is close enough that when he thinks about wanting food, he's thinking about wanting it from the rich man's table. And so we have these two men juxtaposed against each other. Rich man, he's rich. Lazarus, he's a beggar. If you look at what they're wearing, what they're clothed in, so to speak, rich man is described as being dressed in purple and fine linen. Lazarus is covered in sores and dogs lick his sores. The rich man it feasts lavishly. He's living luxuriously. Meanwhile, Lazarus is longing to eat what falls from the rich man's table. And so you have these two extremes, uh, these kind of awful extremes here. And it's ordinary, and it's unfortunately ordinary. Um, yeah, and so, you know, in in the pledge of a story in, in the first act of a Twilight Zone episode, in, in the beginning of it, really almost any story, we don't necessarily know what's coming, but we know what to expect. And so a story like this, you have this rich man who is living lavishly and is l allowing this beggar to just be destitute and diseased and, you know, obviously isn't doing anything to help. Lazarus wishes and longs for what would even fall from the rich man's table, and he's not even getting that much. So that's that's the pledge. That's Act One, and so we move into Act Two, which in uh, in the Prestige is called the Turn. And so Michael Caine says. The second act is called The Turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. And now this is kind of referring more to the, the magic trick. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. But you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. So that's that's act two. That's the turn. And that's where the story goes from being just an ordinary thing to being something extraordinary. And if you're just talking about general storytelling, 
you know, you don't have to go into a fantasy zone or into the twilight zone, I guess, um, in order for your story to become something extraordinary. You just have to take it into a place where your characters are moving into something new or something life changing, you know, it, but this is second act stuff here. This is where things get interesting. And so what happens to the rich man and the beggar? To make things get interesting well they both quote go the way of all flesh <laughs> they both die um one day the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to abraham's side the rich man also died and was buried and being in torment in hades he looked up and saw abraham a long way off with lazarus at his side <laughs> so that's yeah things are getting interesting i mean we're, we're in the afterlife now uh so this is where it does start to feel kind of twilight zone ish doesn't it you know um, so rich man gets a burial. He gets good treatment on his way out of life. At the end of the physical side, the rich man gets his great treatment. He doesn't even notice. He doesn't know what's going on. He's dead. Uh, but at the beginning of the other side, that's where Lazarus gets the good treatment. And, you know, I've always been curious, like, what does it mean about Abraham's side and Abraham's bosom? Um, and there's a lot of different things that can be taken out of this. There, it, it suggests a lot, honestly. But the main takeaway is that Lazarus is not alone. Um, the, the idea is he is honored. He's next to Abraham. He has companionship in this very important person. Um, now, it could be heaven, maybe. It could be the waiting place for the righteous dead. Uh, whatever it is, we know it's it's good. But the, the other thing is that um, when you use that phrasing, the idea is that you are... Uh, you are reclining at someone's side in a banquet. You're at the place of honor. And the bottom line is, for the purposes of this story, Lazarus is finding himself in an honored place, in a good place, and the rich man is in Hades. He's in torment. Because this is what we're expecting, you know. The story starts out, this guy's not treating the poor guy very well. We especially with our modern tendencies, are expecting a comeuppance for this man who is doing something bad and treating someone poorly. And the comeuppance is a role reversal, complete and utter role reversal. The rich man becomes the beggar. This is what he says. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm in agony in this flame. Look at his words. He calls out Father Abraham, and that is his relationship as a Jewish man to this person who's standing up there with Lazarus. He calls out for mercy. He asks for mercy. And how many times had Lazarus asked that same question of the rich man? Have mercy on me. Just give me the crumbs from your table. Then he asked Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water. Cool my tongue. He's asking for Lazarus to be his servant. Uh, yes, Lazarus in some ways is still beneath him, but he's not asking for much. He's just asking for more than he ever gave. Why? Because I'm in agony in this fire. Again, he's asking for a relief that he himself never gave. So you get Abraham's answer then. Son, remember that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, 
while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. And so you look at his answer, and, and again, you have that relationship. He says, son. And then he says, remember. He says, think back on how you lived your life. He says, in your lifetime, you received your good things, but Lazarus received bad things. This is not earned things, by the way. He doesn't say you got what you deserved and Lazarus got what he deserved. No, he just says, this is what you got. This is what he got. But then he says, now he is comforted. You are in agony. And besides, we're separated. There is a chasm that cannot be crossed. And it's, it's tragedy. It's, it's horrible. It's the second act. It's the turn. The rich man's reply to what Abraham said is what leads us into the prestige, though, as Jesus brings it all home and kind of, uh, you know, gives his own Twilight Zone twist to the end. And, and honestly, this is where it really, really, really starts to feel like a Twilight Zone ending. And not because of the big twist. Now, a Twilight Zone end- ending is usually connected to a giant twist. Not here. Now, Michael Caine says, that's why every trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Um, he doesn't really define it very much, but it's it's the wow moment. It's the didn't expect that moment. One of the things that I'm not expecting or that I wouldn't have expected uh, is that the rich man is a, a changed man. He is. He suddenly moves from being self-focused to being other focused. Now it's his brothers he's talking about, but it's too late. It's too late. And so here's what he says. Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. And the request is reasonable. Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers that I care about. Have Lazarus warn them so they don't come to this place of torment. Abraham's answer? They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham. (laughs) If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And then here's where the big turn comes. As Abraham answers, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. It's not Hades or or hell that makes this a horror story. It's not the possibility of the walking dead. It's in the Twilight Zone-ish ending where the man finally changes, but it's too late. He's trapped in, you know, if it was a Twilight Zone episode, you know, the, the narrator, Rod Serling, would just straight up say he's trapped in the Twilight Zone. You know, it's, it's, it's over for him. Um, he's, he's trapped where he is and his brothers will be as well. Uh, because the thing is, they had all they needed for their salvation and they, they ignored it. And now there's just helplessness and hopelessness. And it's not because there's no hope or no help it's because there was hope 
and help. They didn't care. Then there's the real world pushing in. And this is what makes it all the more clever. I mean, that other stuff I was talking about is what makes it tragic. This is what makes it clever. And what makes it clever is Jesus's words where he has Abraham say, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't be convinced. Well, based on what I know from what I can piece together of the, the chronology of the Gospels. And it's something that I've worked on. I mean, I, I worked on a, a book, 12 issues of a comic book called The Christ, where I was taking the four Gospels and putting them in chronological order. And based on what I've picked up, you can't put everything in perfect order because it wasn't written in that structure. The Gospels were not written to tell a strictly linear story. Uh, there's definitely a chronology to it. Jesus is born. Jesus does this. He lives his life. There's the things he does before his crucifixion, the things he does after. There's the things he does in the last week. That's important to know that it was in the last week. But based on what I can kind of tell, before he tells this story, he had already raised at least two people from the dead. I say at least because it's possible that he raised some other people from the dead that we don't know about because they weren't in the Gospels. We don't have every single thing that Jesus did while he was here on earth written down for us. We have the highlights. We have the important things. We have some really interesting things, but we don't have everything. A third person who would be raised from the dead, curiously, is named Lazarus. Is it a coincidence that Jesus, before raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, tells a story about a guy named Lazarus who the punchline of the story is that even if Lazarus would be raised from the dead, you still wouldn't listen. You still wouldn't listen to the, the, the Moses and the prophets. It's not a coincidence. It can't be. What does it mean exactly? I don't exactly know because there's a lot of interpretations I think you can make out of that. But Jesus chose to name the person in this story, Lazarus. The other thing is he was predicting responses when he himself would be raised from the dead and they still wouldn't believe. And that adds another layer of tragedy uh, to this, to this whole thing, not just to the story itself, but to the circumstances around and behind the story. Now, Jesus as a storyteller resounds with me. Um, I just, you know, I've been a storyteller as long as I have been able to put words together. And, you know, I've always known that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to write stories and graphic novels and all those kind of things. And I love being able to do that. I love that a lot of my adult life has been spent um, actually getting paid to do this thing that I love, you know, uh, whether it's uh, teaching stories to kids or using puppets to tell stories or, you know, doing the comic book thing, whatever. Uh, so Jesus, whenever I look at his stories, they just, it just resounds with me to know that's him. You know, that's something he valued. It's something that he used. And it's something that he gave as a gift to us, the gift of story. And so there's much to learn here as a storyteller. Uh, you know, he's using that three-act structure. He's got the pledge. He's got the turn. He's got the prestige. Uh, or you could just say he's got, uh, you know, he starts out with this ordinary thing that people understand, and then he applies an extraordinary meaning to it. But there's also personal applications here. 
And what I mean is there's, there's a lot of different ways that this story can be uh, interpreted and looked at. And one of them is this could be a literal snapshot of, of the afterlife. Uh, and a couple things kind of point in this direction. One is that this is the only story that Jesus uses where he names a character. Usually the people in his stories are given a label, but not a name. You know, there's the Samaritan, there's the rich man, you know, there's um, the the judge, you know, there's a judge and there's a widow. You know, he, he gives them a label that describes what they are, but not a name that is who they are. And so it's it's possible that as he's telling the story, he's telling a story about an actual guy named Lazarus. A different Lazarus than the one who gets raised from the dead, but an actual guy named Lazarus. The other thing that makes this interesting is that as he's telling the story, he's he's not reflecting what the people believe about the afterlife. This this is kind of his own variation on the afterlife. And so it's not like he's telling a story that says, hey, uh, here's this story and here's what happens. And the afterlife that I'm describing looks exactly like what, what you've got in, in your own belief system. He, he, and so it's it's possible that the reason varies from what the Jewish people of the time believed about the afterlife is because it's it's the truth uh, and it's it's an accurate representation of the afterlife where you have this chasm between Hades and paradise but then there's also the idea that it's a strictly allegory um, and and that what what he describes in the afterlife is an allegorical description of what you would find in the afterlife because there is the idea that you know the righteous dead are you know waiting to be you know re um, reunited, for lack of a better term, with uh, their new and perfect body, and that um, people who are unrighteous who die go into an eternal sleep, eternal death. So the idea that the rich man who is in Hades and is you know aware and, and is talking and is doing stuff and is in torment kind of goes against some of, of, of that stuff. Then there's also the possibility that this is just plain satire, where Jesus is satirizing the religious leaders of the time. And, and one of the things that kind of points in that direction is um, the way he describes the rich man. He's wearing linens and purple. And what he's describing is the things that um, the Sadducees might be wearing. And, um, and then he also has, you know, there could be a little bit of a, a poke at the Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so then he's saying, um, hey, uh, they, you could rise from the dead and they still wouldn't believe. Well, especially the Sadducees, you know, they, they wouldn't believe because they just plain don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then, you know, the fact that he's telling the story to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders here, and he's talking about, hey, what you get in life is not what you deserve. And that's a theme that comes up often. Who, who sinned? His, his parents or him that he was born blind? You know, and, and Jesus is like, nobody. He's born blind so that I could do this. And then he heals him. And... I mean, he's basically, he's telling the story to the rich men of of the time and of the place. And, you know, in some ways, that, that is what we need to keep in mind when we read this, is, is to know his audience here is the people who were like the rich man. But then I think it's also important for us as we read it now, just kind of ask yourself, okay, right now as I'm reading this, which person in the parable do I resonate with the most? 
and it might be Lazarus because, you know, you're, you're thinking I'm not the rich man, you know, and, and that's, that's fine. That's, that's well and good. But then I also would ask maybe that we should take it a step further and say, okay, so I resonate with this guy here the most, but what can I learn from this guy here? And I would throw this out as you are, you know, <laughs> it's easy to say, well, what can I learn about this guy over here, the rich man? I have learned that people should not be like him. And I know people like him and they need to change. Again, that's an easy reading. The more difficult reading is to look at it and say, okay, this guy, what's he doing that's like what I do? What am I doing that's like what he has done? And, and that's where <laughs> and that's where Jesus, uh, he starts doing what they used to say my pastor would do. Um, I, I worked with a pastor. I was, I was the youth pastor, and, and they used to say to him, um, Pastor, it's it's great when you're preaching, but I don't like it when you get meddling, <laughs> you know. And um, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's moving past preaching, moving past teaching. He's getting into meddling uh, with life, with people's lives, and he he's saying, "Hey, this is something you shouldn't be doing." And I think it's important, uh, you know, not to lay false blame on yourself, but it is important to say, "Okay, what can I learn from the bad guy in this story?" and that's, this is one of those places, especially where it's easy to, to align yourself with Lazarus because who wouldn't align themselves with Lazarus and who wouldn't want to be him in the afterlife at Abraham's side and getting to talk to Abraham and say, hey, what was it like, you know, when you got to do this? And, and Abraham's all, it was great, but you know what I've been doing for the last few thousand years is, you know, that kind of thing. It's harder to say, okay, what is Jesus condemning in this story? And how does my own life and actions align with what Jesus is condemning in this story. And, and that's something that I think we'd be a lot better off if, if more of us would do that kind of thing. So anyway, that is uh, our uh, biblical horror story for the year, for the, <laughs> for the season. And um, I do find it uh, very, very interesting and, and enjoyable in some ways to look at it in that way. But then there's also the, the tragedy involved where we do, you know, as Christians have to take a look at this and say, oh, that's a rough story. No matter how you look at it, no matter who it's about, that's, that's a rough thing. So, Hey, I want to thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for uh, spending time with me. And I just want to wish you no matter who you are, where you are, where you're going, where you've been, I just want to wish you Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast hosted by Ben Avery, Evan David, Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jace O'Neill. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter where we are at Strange and Alien or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangers and aliens or leave us a voicemail by calling the strangers and aliens hotline that number is 1-804-37-ALIEN and once again thanks for listening <laughs>